From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, sports talk from The Nation. Remember how in 2016, an NFL quarterback named Colin Kaepernick began a series of quiet protests on the field, refusing to stand for the national anthem in protest against the epidemic of police shootings of African Americans? Remember how his action, taking a knee five years ago, became the symbol of resistance to racial injustice? Well, that political movement in sports is the subject of a new book by our sports commentator, Dave Zirin. His book is called The Kaepernick Effect. But first, we need to talk about Haiti and the recent kidnapping there of 16 Americans. We'll speak with Amy Willens in just a moment. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Amy Willens has been writing about Haiti for a long time, most recently in the award-winning book, Farewell Fred Voodoo. And for the Washington Post, the LA Times, and the New York Times, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and the former Jerusalem bureau chief of The New Yorker magazine. And she is a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. She teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. We reached her today at home in LA. Hi, Amy. Hi, John. Well, I always open our Haiti segments with a reminder about why we care, not just because of the misery and suffering of the Haitians, but because of Haiti's unique history. Haiti had the first successful slave revolution and established the first black republic in the world. Which brings us to this week's news. We're speaking here on Monday night, more than a week after the uh, kidnappings of October 16th, 16 Americans plus one Canadian, including several children, all part of Christian Aid Ministries, a Mennonite group from Ohio. I read in the New York Times uh, today that Port-au-Prince has become the world's kidnapping capital. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think it's true right now. Definitely. I think in a situation where the government is not only not patrolling or paying attention to the rule of law, where the government is not necessarily in charge of the police, and if they are, they're doing a bad job, where the government is participating to various degrees with the gangs that are committing these kidnappings, where no one is being prosecuted, no one arrested, where they can barely find the right people to think about in the assassination of a president. Yeah, it's it's a lawless place right now. That's why I'm reporting to you from uh, beautiful Los Angeles and not from Haiti, where I would normally be. Uh, even I now have finally been a little bit scared off. I read there have been at least 628 kidnappings in the first nine months of 2021. Uh, and who gets kidnapped Well, let me first say 628 kidnappings in the first half of 2021. Well, the president was killed during that time. And that has opened up a power vacuum where 
anything goes. So what, that's one reason that there are so many. But there have been a lot uh, over the past 10 years since the earthquake of 2010. And even before that, under the rule of the uh, UN peacekeepers, uh, which were a force in Haiti called MINUSTA. And a lot of those people came from countries where there was kidnapping and sort of schooled the Haitians in how to do it right. You know, So the question who gets kidnapped is a very good one. Who gets kidnapped in Haiti are people who don't merit headlines in the American mainstream media. First of all, just everyday average Haitians get kidnapped. School children, nurses, uh, physicians, assistants, um, anyone who might be seen to have a little bit more money than the average Haitian or who is known to have a relative in the United States or who went to a professional school at some point in their lives. Anyone who might have some money in pocket or relatives with money in pocket to pay ransoms. So that's anyone. That can be a, a, a Chabon de Bois seller. That's a market woman who sells uh, charcoal. And then, of course, Haiti's dwindling middle class, who are actually middle class, like pediatricians, lawyers, et cetera, also are targets because they actually have some money. They actually have family in the U.S. or Canada who really have some bank accounts, and they, too, are victims of this. So essentially, the gangs who are kidnapping are attacking those classes of Haitians who are able to uh, provide Haiti with a future. And that, to me, is a really desperate moment. You wrote in The Nation that the kidnapping of the Americans is a kind of blowback. What do you mean? Well, I see it as a blowback for the failed American policy in Haiti over the past decade, at least. And of course, for many years before that, but it's been more refined as a failure in the past 10 years, during which uh, we've supported and enabled uh, elections that were really show elections of Michel Martelly and then of Jovenel Moïse, Michel Martelly's protege, both members of the same party, both uh, running extremely corrupt administrations, pillaging the Haitian treasury, as pathetic as that sounds, there's money there to be had. And they did it and the people under them did it. Meanwhile, uh, running administrations of grotesque negligence of the state so that the Haitian people are essentially left to their own devices. Meanwhile, these gangs are being fomented for political reasons, for criminal reasons and for um, protection of corruption. And they're, you know, they kidnap someone. No one is arrested. There's a massacre. No one is arrested. Even when government officials are known to have participated in arming a gang that commits a massacre in a marketplace of 70 people, no one's arrested. And, and the American government continues to support these two presidents and everything they do and assures uh, the State Department under Obama, under Trump, and now under Biden, that these are our best hope in Haiti. Well, it's a racist policy and it's bound to have some kind of blowback. And now you're seeing the blowback because the gangs are now so arrogant or something that they would dare to kidnap 16 American missionaries. I'm not saying that missionaries have a very pure record in Haiti. They don't. And this American missionary group does also not have a very pure record in Haiti. But still, again, it's very, very uh, arrogant on the part of this gang to kidnap Americans. You don't know what you're getting into when you do such a thing. What do you mean this group of Mennonite missionaries does not have a pure record? 
I'm not sure how many years ago it was, but one member of the Christian Aid Ministries, and this was known to the um, administration of CAM, was abusing boys, Haitian boys, under his control for 15 years. Mm. Then I think Christian Aid Ministries uh, said, you know, you can't keep doing this. We're putting you back in the United States. He went back to Ohio. He continued his path of abuse of kids. This time they were kids from Ohio and he was caught and he was prosecuted. He's now in jail. And the whole story came out. Uh, I don't know if this was known even to the gang that did the kidnapping. I don't believe that they've even asserted anything about that. But it's important to recognize that it's a complicated relationship. I'm sure these people are all good, decent people, but and it's hideous to kidnap anyone at any time for any reason. Kidnapping is inexcusable. But I'm just saying there's a fraught relationship between yeah. missionaries and the Haitians that they deal with. We've talked about the kidnappings. We've talked about the corruption. Uh, we talked about President Moise being assassinated, but that was only one of many, many assassinations. Oh, yeah. That was the assassination that was noticed by the mainstream media in the U.S. He's a president. It's understandable. That's what you write about. But I do think that the assassination of the head of the Haitian Bar Association, Montferrier Dorval, was worth noticing in the American media. I think that the assassination of Antoinette Duclair, an outspoken, well-known, much beloved absolutely adorable young woman who was an opponent of the government and of this corruption and of the lawlessness, her cold-blooded assassination, along with her friend, a journalist, a radio journalist who was working on an investigation of the corruption, Diego Schau, those were worth noting too, but they don't get noticed. So I think that's really sad. And I think the reason that it's a tragedy for Haiti that things like that don't get mentioned. And they might have been mentioned in an earlier era when we cared about human rights, but now they're not mentioned. And it's a tragedy because then suddenly the president is assassinated. No one knows why. No one understands what's happening there. And American policy doesn't get fixed because there's never any public awareness of what's going on. In your most recent article in The Nation on Haiti, you provide a list of 10 rules for being the president of Haiti. Please give us the list. I'm going to just read you that list. It's made a big splash in Haiti where it was translated into French. So here are the rules from the U.S. Embassy for being president of Haiti or just de facto prime minister, which is what we have now. Uh, maybe you, my listeners, would like this job. I think it sounds really good. Uh, one. Don't interfere with Haitian business people who are old friends of the American embassy, no matter what corruption they're into, customs, ports, energy, protection, banking, etc. They're our old friends. That's the American embassy speaking. Two, understand that you are president, but the business people run Haiti as they wish and as we wish. We support them even if they might plausibly have been involved in your death. This is number three. You may you too may steal and let your friends steal. You too may assassinate and let your friends assassinate. Massacre likewise. Please try to do it quietly. But frankly, as long as you obey rule number one, don't mess with the business people. We don't care. We will never stop you. We don't care if you have millions of dollars from unknown sources stowed away in cash in your house, as President Moise did when he was killed. Four. If you need gangs to run the country because you've destroyed all democratic institutions and all law enforcement through attrition, firings and corruption, okay, 
We don't really care what they do. However, see rule number nine. We will get to rule nine in just one moment. Five, do not worry about the Haitian people. They are long-suffering, philosophical, fatalistic, resilient. That's our favorite word. They are proud and uncomplaining, and they know how to make a buck a day in a failed economy. They can put up with your neglect. If they die of COVID because you wouldn't and couldn't provide vaccinations, don't worry. Also, they won't starve, and if they do, we don't care. Six, but don't let them leave the country. We'll help you stop them. If you let them leave, we will send them back. The Americans have now sent back at about 10,000 Haitians recently. Seven, never think we respect you or will protect you. We don't, we won't. But do what we say or you're out. You're not independent. You are not the leader of a sovereign nation. Don't kid yourself. Mm. Eight, remember only some black lives matter, black American lives. Nine, thus, Never let the gangs kidnap white Americans. Never. So that's the rule you have to remember when you permit the gangs to run the country. Never let them kidnap white Americans. And number 10 is the most important. Never admit these are our rules for you. Amy Willis's 10 rules for governing uh, Haiti. But number nine has been violated. It's been violated boldly. It's been gotten into the headlines in the United States. And it's unprecedented in its scope. It's a gigantic kidnapping. They took a bus full of these missionaries with children. Then the guy whose name is Wilson Joseph, who runs the gang 400 Maozo, said he's going to blow the heads off these people, which I highly doubt. But you don't know. He could be a complete pathological killer. I don't know. I don't know much about him. Why? Why would a gang do this? They had a perfectly good system of ransom before this, and now they could be in trouble, maybe. Well, it's a high value target. So you're a kidnapper. You say, oh, I can kidnap a lady from the market who sells charcoal, or I can kidnap a bus full of Americans. <laughs> But, of course, the lady from the market has no resources to respond against you. There's nothing she can do. Whereas 16 Americans, you're, you're asking for it. You might not get it. And that may be one of the considerations of these gangs. This gang may be saying the American government supports the gangs. They don't support the Haitian people. They won't support these missionaries. They're going to let us do what we want to do. We're going to ask for money and they're going to give us the money because they don't want to see these people harmed um, publicly, it wouldn't be good for the Biden administration. So that's one thing they might say. But another thing they might say is, hmm, now we have 16 American hostages and we're not really a gang. We're run by someone. And that has been the problem with the gangs all along is they're run by various nefarious and shadowy figures in Haitian culture and the Haitian economy. We can't know exactly who's running whom, but they could be saying, OK, we have 16 hostages rather than kidnap victims and we're going to bargain. We're going to say, don't change the government. We want Ariel Henry to be in power, maybe. Or they're going to say, change the government. We want so and so to be president. Maybe we don't know really what their motivation is. But I will say that if he blows the heads off these missionaries, he's very likely to be killed himself. So it, it's a suicidal transaction for him to kill them. He still could. He still could. He still could, yes. And that's very scary. Now, one of the most important parts of your 
reporting on Haiti for the nation is you're writing about the civil society groups who are seeking a democratic Haiti, especially one called the Commission for a Haitian Solution. Tell us about them and where they stand right now. Commission is a group, a large umbrella group that's been working. They started their work about three or four months before President Moise was assassinated. So they didn't leap into a power void and say, we want to take control now. They were already working on this as committed, I think, patriots, and they they reached out to all sectors of society. So very much uh, reached out to grassroots people. These are educators and human rights people who began this group. They're very... Um, well-educated Haitians. So they're not your average Haitian and they're not your average militant Haitian or activist Haitian, but they reached out to all of those people, students, labor, teachers, professors, shantytown, organizers, as well as the private sector, whomever they could grab. There aren't that many with a great consciousness, but there are some, especially among the younger generation. And they reached out to all sorts of uh NGO workers and to doctors and professionals of all kinds. Let's not miss farmers all through the countryside. So that's a very important part of Haitian society, a very needy part. So it's a very large group with about 800 signatories who are not just individual signatories. They are they represent groups. And these people have all come together and really worked on documents. There's something called the Montana Accord, which lays out a blueprint or a map, you could call it, um, of how to proceed with a uh, an interim government toward elections, but not over speedily and not the way the U.S. has wanted to do it every time they deal with a difficult situation in Haiti. Let me, let me just inject here. It's called the Montana document, not because of the American state of Montana. <laughs> right. It's called that because of the uh, hotel where it was uh, hammered out in the end and signed the Montana Accord. Yes. So Biden is doing something right now. He just sent a plane full of FBI officers to work uh, with the Haitian government, whatever that means right now, on hostage negotiations. This is actually the second FBI team that Biden has sent there. The first went to work investigating the killing of President Moise. How's that first investigation going? Not so great. Uh, they don't really know who did it. That is the exact killing with the gun. They don't really know how they got control of the house to get in. They don't really know much about the Colombian mercenaries who were on the scene either at the time of the killing or very soon after the killing. They've arrested now another person, another Colombian we're not really sure what his relationship is to the killing. They've mentioned several people as the masterminds, none of whom has anything to do with the other. So uh, I'm not saying just the FBI has done this, but this has been the Haitian government's comportment as it goes forward with FBI team to figure this out. So basically, after so that's July, that's four months ago. No solution in a very corrupt place. It's not that easy to know who did what. Last question. Who's really in charge in Haiti today? Is it the de facto prime minister, Ariel Henry, or or is it the gangs? I think it's the gang. Someone said today, I saw on WhatsApp, someone said, Ariel Henry, are you there in the cockpit? 
<laughs> no, he's not there in the cockpit. The other day, he went to lay a wreath on the um, memorial to Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Jean-Jacques Dessalines was a great revolutionary leader and an emperor of early Haiti, very important figure in the minds of Haitians and everyone who knows about this revolution that was concluded by Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Um, and Ariel Henry, the de facto pres prime minister of Haiti, uh, basically given uh, a rubber stamp and a green light by the American embassy, went to lay his wreath. <laughs> Before this, it is alleged by a very respectable human rights person, he paid uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the gang that runs that area to be allowed to lay the wreath. He gets there with his 10 SUVs and the gang is there, money in pocket, shooting their guns in the air. And the president, oops, excuse me, the de facto prime minister jumps back into his SUV with all of his people because they're being shot at and they rush away. And then the head of the gang, Jimmy Cherizier, who's known as Barbecue. It's a colorful country. Yes, it is. Comes in a white suit with a bigger wreath than the de facto prime minister had. And he lays that on the memorial spot of Dessalines. He is Dessalines follower. That's how he sees himself. And he will be at one point a contender for the presidency of Haiti, although he's a criminal. But we've seen that happen in our country. So Amy Willens, reader at the nation.com. Amy, thanks so much for your report today. Thank you. Now it's time for sports talk. Remember how in 2016, an NFL quarterback named Colin Kaepernick began a series of quiet protests on the field, at first refusing to stand for the national anthem. He was protesting against the epidemic of police shootings of African-Americans. And remember how his action then taking a knee five years ago became the symbol of resistance to racial injustice in America. That political movement in sports is the subject of a new book by Dave Zirin. Of course, he's sports editor for The Nation and host of our sister podcast at The Nation, Edge of Sports. He's written many books, including A People's History of Sports in the United States. He's been a regular guest on MSNBC, CNN, and ESPN. His new book is called The Kaepernick Effect. We reached him today at home in Washington, D.C. Dave Zirin, welcome back. Oh, it's great, great, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Colin Kaepernick was kicked out of professional football for taking a knee, but hundreds, if not thousands, of young athletes followed his example and took a knee at their own games during the national anthem. Many of them faced ostracism, condemnation, and even death threats. And all of that came in the couple of years before George Floyd was murdered by a cop in Minneapolis. So, Let's start this story at the beginning, August 2016. The San Francisco 49ers were about to play the Packers. This was a preseason game. Who was Colin Kaepernick at that point? Colin Kaepernick at the time was the backup quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, he's coming off injuries. There was a new coach in town. It wasn't the best point in his career for the quarterback who only a few years earlier had led the San Francisco 49ers to the Super Bowl. Colin Kaepernick was also somebody who was absolutely disgusted by the state of the United States and particularly the issue of police violence. 
uh, like many people in that summer of 2016, he was becoming really plugged in to what was taking place in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement. If you remember over that summer, there were these viral videos of uh, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile uh, yeah, being Philando killed Cast by police. Philando Castile uh, meant a lot to me in particular because that happened in my hometown of St. Paul. In fact, Philando Castile went to the same high school that I did, St. Paul Central. You remember the story. He was stopped for a broken taillight. His girlfriend was next to him in the front seat. Her four-year-old daughter was in the back seat. The cop then shot and killed him while his girlfriend screamed and recorded the whole thing on cell phone video. It was the next month that Kaepernick started his symbolic protest. Now, was he well-known as a political activist at that point? Uh, no, and this was at a time where dozens of athletes were starting to speak out, really starting in 2012 after the murder of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman in Sanford, Florida. That's really, really where you start to see this wave of athletes start to use their hyper-exalted, brought-to-you-by-Nike platform to say something about the world. And Colin Kaepernick had yet to be counted among those legions of athletes who were starting to speak out. And yet in that moment, August 2016 preseason game, Colin Kaepernick was being asked, as they're always asked in the NFL, to stand at attention for the national anthem. And he just had enough. And so what he did without sending a tweet, without sending a press release, without sending so much as a carrier pigeon, decided that he was just going to sit behind his teammates on the bench with his towel over his head. And no one even really noticed that he was doing this. And it might have even become just a one-week story, except a reporter named Steve Weish, who's a, a terrific sports writer, he noticed what Colin Kaepernick was doing and made a beeline for him. And he had known Colin since Colin played in college and uh, had been following his social media and had noticed that Colin had been posting some stories about these police shootings. And so he went up to him and said, hey, what was up with you not standing for the anthem? Can you talk to me about that? And that's when Colin responded like a like, like a dam breaking and him saying, you know, there there are people dead in the street and police officers are getting away with murder. And that really started the, the whole process uh, that led to him taking a knee and all these other athletes taking a knee. Uh, it was really that moment. And the response was pretty quick, uh, too. Donald Trump at that point was running for president. What did he say about Colin Kaepernick? Well, his first comments was that he should find another country to live in, well. which, of course, to his base, you know, that you hear... Donald Trump saying that about a black quarterback in the National Football League. I mean, he's basically saying go back to Africa. I mean, it's a highly racialized statement and has been in this country uh, for, I mean, frankly, like 150 years yeah. uh, as white racists have dealt with black discontent. And, you know, Trump sees seizing on this controversy and turning it into an election issue. What it did was it, it polarized and it divided and it turned what Colin Kaepernick was doing into a cause celebre on the left. And it turned him into an object of, of relentless hatred on the right. And then there were kind of the liberal liberals in the middle, especially the NFL officials. Their line was, I support his goals, but not his methods. And what happened to Colin Kaepernick's 
career as an NFL quarterback? Well, first, we got us before uh, the end of that season and everything that's occurred in the years since then. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, we got to say, spent that 2016 season taking a knee before every single game, whether they were at home in the friendly confines of the Bay Area in San Francisco or whether they were on the road in very hostile environs in the American South or you know other places. I mean, let's remember what Malcolm X said about the American South really starts at the Canadian border because <laughs> uh, one, one of the most vociferous anti-Kaepernick reactions was in Buffalo just south of the Canadian border. So Colin Kaepernick basically engaged in a four-month protest against police violence and racial inequity. And he also started this process of taking a knee, a gesture that he uh, conjured with a, a former NFL player and Green Beret named Nate Boyer. And it was Boyer's logic who said, he said, you know what? People are so angry at you for sitting during the anthem. Why don't you try taking a knee? Because that will show dissent, but also proper respect. And they won't be able to say, oh, he's doing this against the troops or he's doing this because, you know, he, he's a anti-American zealot. But their calculation was very off because once yeah. he took a knee, it immediately became something more iconic. And Colin Kaepernick was on the cover of Time magazine. And it also bequeathed a language to a generation of young activist athletes that, they could follow this lead, that they could take a knee as well, that if they were upset about the world, here was something concrete that they could do. And the great thing about your book, The Kaepernick Effect, is that it's mostly not about professional athletes. Chapter one is not about the NFL. It's about high school. And I have to say, it's not easy to find out what's going on at American high schools. You did find out. You found out a lot for instance, you found out what was going on in Brunswick, Ohio. Yes. I spoke to a young man named Rodney Axon. And first, I got to say, I started writing this book at the start of the pandemic. And it's really hard to talk to high school students on the phone normally. It's hard for me to talk to my own 17-year-old daughter on the phone. Like If I call her up, she'll say, what, is it an emergency? And I'll say, no, I was just calling. And she'll say, oh, text next time. It, it's just a whole different way they have of communicating. Phone calls are strictly for if you're trapped underneath a large piece of furniture. But what, what I found was that these young folks were really bored. They were home. You know, everybody was on shutdown at the start of the pandemic. We all remember what that was like. You'd be scared to venture out of the house for vegetables and fruits. And here were these young people bored out of their minds. And here I am, this writer, calling them, tracking them down. And they were just ready to talk. Hmm. So th they really opened up to me. And I'll never be able to express my gratitude enough for how open they were about what they went through. And one of those folks was Rodney Axon in Brunswick, Ohio. And he told me a very personal story about a family, his family growing up in Cleveland and his family deciding, let's move to this predominantly white suburb of Brunswick where it'll be safer. There'll be better schools, better opportunity. You know, sounds a lot like something we used to call the American dream. But what he found being out in Brunswick as one of the few black people and one of the few black families is that he was subject to harassment by police. He would hear people use racial slurs. Uh, when he was on the football team, his own teammates would use the N-word very casually. I should be clear, his white teammates would mm -hmm. use it very casually. 
And he had just had enough. And when you couple that with the existence of a movement and then add the special spice of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, he saw something that he could do. And when Colin Kaepernick took that knee, everything just clicked with Rodney Axon. And he knew what he needed to do. So he was the first person to take a knee after Kaepernick. And the backlash was very intense and very severe. I mean, so bad that uh, he got death threats. His family got death threats. Death threats came into the school. And he started walking his uh, little sister to elementary school every morning because he was worried about her personal safety. And I think one of the things about Rodney that's so remarkable is that despite going through all of that, despite being then ostracized by his team, despite the fact that his coach didn't have his back, I mean, he, he has no regrets whatsoever. None. Uh, the kind of the world capital of high school football is Texas. And you found out about Beaumont, Texas, about a guy named Jalen Parkerson. Oh, yeah. I just was talking to uh, Jalen's mom just the other day. And I got to say, one of the rewarding things about this book has been keeping up with the people who, who did this work. Um, Jalen right now is a high school star playing in Beaumont, Texas. Uh, he's a quarterback, uh, which in Texas is, is very, you know. Doesn't that, get that's, much better than that in high school. Yes. And when he was in middle school, his team decided that they were going to take a knee. And his entire middle school team, the Beaumont Bulls, and when they took a knee, and these are middle school kids, they just saw what Kaepernick did. They're like, well, we also hate racism. They were in a community where there had been racist incidents. One town over was the headquarters of the KKK in the region. So they decided to take a knee. And the result was the people who ran the league were so freaked out. They not only canceled Jalen's team, but they canceled the entire league. I mean, talk about <laughs> cancel culture. Whoa. And and it, what's what's so interesting about that to me is, you know, they you can buy a T-shirt just about anywhere in Texas that says the big three, faith, family and football. Yeah. And yet what you see is that there's actually a big four and the big four. Number four is white supremacy. <laughs> and that was actually number one, because if it was really just about football, family and faith, you'd let the kids play. Yeah. Uh, but clearly that was too much for them. So, so the team and the league got completely scuttled. But what happened after that was really amazing. Uh, really amazing. Um, it, because we live in this viral age of social media, uh, this small town where this injustice took place, it somehow got the ear of some NFL players and they wrote some checks and underwrote the creation led by the parents of these kids of an entirely new league for Beaumont and for the kids. And it's, it's a remarkable story of solidarity. It's also a remarkable, to me, revelatory story about courage in the face of repression. And my goodness, I think a lot of these stories, John, are like the canary in the coal mine for everything we're dealing with in 2021. I mean, think about that story I just told you about the canceling of the Beaumont Bulls in Texas five years ago. And now think about Texas today, where they're canceling transgender athletes, they're canceling voting rights, uh, they're canceling re women's reproductive rights. And I think that showed like the, the very autocratic, very repressive nature 
of the Texas Republican Party and frankly, like the the out to lunch nature of the Texas Republican Party. It was it was all on display if people had cared to look in Beaumont, Texas. And there's one more uh, story of high school football I, I want you to tell, and that's a story about Minneapolis, Minneapolis North uh, High School. This was a city, of course, where Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. But four years before that, the football team was taking a knee. And went on to win the championship. It actually brought the team together. I mean, and you know that story meant a great deal to me, John, because I, I went to McAllister College uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And so even before the murder of George Floyd, my eyes were very much on Minneapolis, St. Paul, with regards to taking a knee and um, how it affected people. And, you know, part of doing that story was also, I think, really important because people think of Minnesota as a blue state. Yeah. People think of it as Minnesota nice is a phrase I'm sure you're very familiar with. Oh, yeah. And one you embody, sir. So let me say that. <laughs> Thank you. But but it, it's it's there's also an underbelly. And uh, in the underbelly, there's there's a lot of racism. And, and that really came out when these young people took a knee. And that's one of the things I wanted to show with this book is that it really doesn't matter. Red state, blue state, like th these kinds of ways of understanding the country actually aren't entirely helpful. There may be helpful a little bit, but not really, especially not in an era of profound gerrymandering and, and disproportionate representation. Like what, what you have instead in this country is I think a battle between let's call it Donald Trump's America and let's call it Colin Kaepernick's America. Yeah. It's like people, people who believe that the only response to the fact that we have a young generation that's more demographically diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States, the only response is repression. While there's another America that says, no, this is the future. We need to actually support these young people as they try to shape their world. And I think that that is the number one fissure. So when people say to me, Colin Kaepernick polarized America, I always say, what are you talking about? Racism and inequality has polarized America, not Colin Kaepernick. He's like the person pointing at the burning building and saying that there's a fire. Your stories about high school football players are totally great. And you have a lot of amazing stories about high school cheerleaders, cheerleaders leading protests against police racism. What's your favorite of those? Well, first, let me just say, like, I knew I couldn't tell every story of people who took a knee because there's so many. So I wanted what I told to be representative of what took place in the country as a whole. So that's why there's so many stories of women athletes and male athletes, because that's representative of what took place. Similarly, cheerleaders uh, really did step up at this moment. And in one of the stories I tell, I mean, it's in uh, a place called Storm Lake, Iowa. I mean, this is Steve King country. Uh, and at a school out there in Storm Lake, uh, this, this incredible young woman, um, she made the decision to take a knee as well as start the school's first black student union. And this caused all kinds of waves at her school. And eventually she felt she had to leave the school. I mean, she was effectively forced out of the school. And I think these are the kinds of stories that I want to tell uh, because people have to know that there were consequences. And let's talk about uh, some of the women athletes in your, your college chapter is a huge chapter. I think my favorite stories there are about the women athletes. For example, the UC Santa Barbara women's basketball team. This is a division one team, six black players. Tell us about them. Well, one of them, of course, was the woman I, I interviewed for the book. Her name was Mikhail uh, Wright. 
And uh, Mikhail told me this story. And it's just, to me, this is a great story of the knee itself. One of the things you see that's a common thread in a lot of these tales is that when these players talk about taking a knee, uh, the result can be really, really volcanic at the level of the administrative level. Yeah. And sometimes you feel like these administrators, whether we're talking about principals or athletic directors or school presidents, sometimes, or coaches as well, of course, sometimes you feel like it's not even that they're against what the aims are of the movement. But like you said, at the start of this interview, they occupy that sort of middle mushy space. And in that middle mushy space, you've got something uh, <laughs> that where they're so terrified of what people taking that knee will provoke among boosters, among alumni, among parents. And so they try to effectively, it's so interesting, like they try to bribe the kids, not with money, but with protest alternatives. So they say things like, how about we make you Black Lives Matter t-shirts and you could wear those? Or how about we make you some black sashes and you can wear those? How about you just hold hands or link arms during the anthem? But the terror about taking that knee is something that was experienced in Santa Barbara. And Mikhail, who I spoke with at length about it, uh, she told me that years later, like when George Floyd was killed and you had the largest protests in the history of the United States, her coach sent her this apology letter mm. uh, about like not understanding what uh, had taken place and feeling like she understood more then. But, you know, in a, in a lot of cases, you know, there's there are people who are really white people, to be clear, who are finally reckoning with what it means to be black or brown in this country is. As one person said to me, I believe her name was Alyssa Parker, one of the stories in the book, she said, if I made you feel uncomfortable by taking a knee for two minutes, well, now you know how I feel every day in this community. And I want to talk about Major League Baseball, very much on our minds here in uh, Los Angeles uh, this week. Baseball, where the players and the owners are the most conservative of all uh, of all sports and where the proportion of African-Americans is smallest. Lots of people of color from the Caribbean and Latin America in baseball, but very few black people born in the USA. The Dodgers, of course, first to integrate Major League Baseball, famously Jackie Robinson, 1947. They now have an African-American manager, Dave Roberts, and an African-American superstar, Mookie Betts, who's from Nashville. Mookie famously took a knee during the playing of the national anthem at the season opener in 2020. But Mookie was the only Dodger to take a knee. Uh, but... Cody Bellinger and Max Muncy, who are white players, stood on either side of him with a hand on Mookie's shoulders, showing solidarity. Now, that was good, but I had to wonder, why didn't they take a knee too? Isn't racism, isn't the problem really the white people, not the black people? So let's talk for a minute about, about baseball, about the Dodgers, about Mookie Betts and Cody Bellinger and Max Muncy and the whole picture that that shows. Yeah, I mean, it shows that uh, we need better anti-racist strategy among white people, which is why I interviewed several white people who had taken a knee in the book. And in one who just raised her fist and now feels guilt that she didn't take the step of taking a knee. And I just find that so fascinating that everybody understands. It's so ubiquitous and universalized at this point that everybody understands that if you take a knee, you are making a statement. You are crossing a Rubicon. 
And there's really no going back at that point. And I think for white folks, it's like they have to realize that there's no risk in putting your hand on somebody's shoulder, but there is risk in taking that knee. And the risk, I wish this wasn't the case, John, but it's the risk that's what gives the protest power. In the end, you turned to another well-known sports activist, John Carlos, and asked him what he thought about everything that's happened after Colin Kaepernick engaged in his silent protest. Yeah, I mean, John Carlos, somebody who raised his fist in 1968 at the Olympics. I mean, he had something very important to say. Like, he, he I was talking to him amidst the fires of the of the George Floyd demonstrations and 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 he said to me we are the positive force the young generation is going to show us the way we need to figure out how to support them organizationally politically ideologically like we we have to be able to support them as they try to build this new world and to hear that from John Carlos someone who's been part of the struggle for over 50 years I mean, that's something I'm going to keep with me the rest of my life. Dave Zirin, his wonderful new book is The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Dave, thanks so much for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. <laughs> <laughs>